1: Find out more by going to www.IntelligenceSquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Welcome to Energized, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Eberdrola. I'm Connor Boyle, Head of Programming at Intelligence Squared. In this series, we bring together experts and policymakers to discuss the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. This event was recorded on February 2nd, 2024. In it, we were joined by a panel of experts to explore the role of green jobs in the energy transition. Here's our host, Kamal Ahmed, with more. Hello
2: and welcome to this energised debate. Thank you for joining us. And I want to say as well a big thanks to Intelligence Squared and Ibidrola, who have been our partners in a whole series of fascinating discussions about how do we actually reach that important milestone of net zero by 2030. We've spoken about energy infrastructure, we've spoken about the grid, We've spoken about electric vehicles and we've spoken about the role of different fuels, hydrogen, for example, and do go to intelligencesquared.com forward slash to catch up on all those interesting conversations. Because one thing we know about the green transition that this world has to be on is that it is only by working together across multiple areas, policymaking, technical developments, the way we travel, the way we think about the world around us and consumption, that we would have any chance of reaching those important uh, milestones. Today, an absolutely fundamental part of that discussion and that green transition, sometimes slightly lost, frankly, in the debate about what are the big changes. Some of them are tough in the green revolution we need to go through. And that's the idea of what are the new jobs that we're going to see? What is the green revolution in jobs going to look like? My daughter's 23, my son is 20. They're just starting on their careers. What is the world going to look like to them by 2030, by 2035, and then onward to 2050? And we know the prize is major. The Independent Labour Organization has suggested 25 million new jobs by 2030 can be created if we work in the right way across the different disciplines, government, policymakers, businesses, civil society, academics, and really think about what are the great advantages we can gain in these spaces. It's about how do we really think about the power of something as fundamental as the industrial revolution and turning into a green revolution. Now, I am joined by the most magnificent panel of experts, thought leaders, and we're going to have a great, maybe a little bit provocative uh, discussion over the next hour which I'm so delighted that you've joined us for. We're joined by Madeline Macrina. Madeline is strategic resourcing manager at Scottish Power. Welcome Madeline. She leads and delivers Scottish Power's strategic workforce planning framework and approach which identifies skills and resource gaps and prioritizes those to support businesses previously spent four years working in iberdrola's global offshore business welcome madeline sean spears sean you and i go back a little way we were talking about work we did together when i was at the bbc as economics editor on the Greenbelt. this has been a long discussion obviously and a particularly public discussion uh, for many many years but welcome Sean executive director of Green Alliance Uh, prior to joining Green Alliance in June 2017 you were the chief executive of the CPRE which is the countryside charity for 13 years and you chair uh, the board of Greener UK which is a coalition of 12 environmental groups set up in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit referendum. And as Chair of Greener UK, you also sit on the Government Strategic Trade Advisory Group. Welcome, Sean, and lovely to catch up again uh, with you. I think last time we were filming in a field uh, somewhere, talking <laughs> about many of the issues that are so important in this transition Uh, discussion. And finally, Sam Alvis. So great to have you with us, Sam. Director at Public First in the Energy and Environment team and author of the climate and energy newsletter, Election Energy. Uh, You're also an Associate Fellow in Green Industrial Policy at the Progressive Think Tank IPPR. And previously, you've worked in policy roles at the Green Alliance the Tony Blair Institute and the Wellcome Trust. Welcome, Sam, to you. So, look, let's uh, let's get started. And Sam, actually, I want to start with you. I've often found, and I was at um, the World Economic Forum at Davos um, a couple of weeks ago, that often for the public watching these debates, um, a lot of words and concepts at quite a macro level are thrown around. But one thing. I find really connects people is something they can really understand and the notion of green jobs at least one of their words those words they understand jobs do the public really understand what we mean by green jobs just unpack the notion of what is a green
3: job. So I think there's two reasons that we talk about green jobs. One is as a policy world, as a political world, to try and sell the benefits of net zero, one of which potentially is job creation. And the other is fundamentally to get people to work in roles that are created on our way to net zero. The problem is, using the words green jobs works for neither of those things. So if you ask people why they care about climate action, what works is, protecting future generations. What works is energy security increasingly since the Russia-Ukraine war. And similarly, if you talk to people about what roles do you want to do, yes, they will mention purpose and environmental purpose is up there, but it really comes far behind job security. It comes behind wages. It comes behind working conditions. And I think particularly, we came up with the green jobs um, as a concept or a gain prominence uh, during the COVID pandemic, when we were really worried that employment was going to fall through the floor and we we're going to have a lot of people we needed to move into new jobs potentially that were going to be backed by uh, the state. Now unemployment didn't rise as much as we were worried about which is fantastic news but also a number of governments flagship green jobs programs so you think about Northvolt the battery manufacturer in the northeast of England government really sold that that would come that would bring a lot of jobs and it didn't uh, and you talk to the public now, and what they will say is green jobs actually they 're a political gimmick; they are something that we don 't trust will come to fruition we don 't know what they mean and that 's not helped by the fact that politics and policy i don 't think has settled on a clear definition of what these roles are, what skills they entail, and who they 're for. This is really interesting, Sam. Give us a little bit of your background. We were talking before we went live at this
2: debate you 're about in depth knowledge of public attitudes. I think this is really really fascinating because I think Politicians often operate with a notion of what the public think, which actually is at variance with what the public actually thinks. So Sam, tell us a bit about your actual role and, and this deep knowledge that you have about how public, the public respond to different ideas around the transition.
3: So Public First are essentially a think tank. We come up with policy solutions to really tricky uh, public policy problems that will help reach us uh, reach net zero. But part of that, our assessment is that you need to bring the public with you. You need to work within the realms of what is acceptable to the public or where you can move them to. And obviously, jobs uh, has been key to that. So I spent a lot of time recently in focus groups, reading polls, talking to people about the concept of green jobs. And it's really funny. So you go in with this idea that we are talking about energy, we're talking about batteries, we're talking about the shiny stuff, the hard hats that politicians like to stand outside. And politicians love to talk about jobs. It's It's real comfort zone for them. But fundamentally, people are worried about a potential change and the level of security that will come with that. And you say green to them, and they go, oh, but I don't really want to work with cows. I don't want to be outside. It's wet. It's cold. I'd like to work inside. I like my current job. Um, Conservation, which undoubtedly is important, as I'm sure Sean will unpack both for the nature crisis and for reaching net zero, is definitely a role. It's not the biggest part of net zero. Um, and it's certainly not reflective of the jobs in finance that we're going to need people to do or the jobs in planning or project management. They just look like normal jobs, but we're using green because we think it helps, but it doesn't. So
2: Sam's thrown a pretty big rock into the pond of the uh, <laughs> title of this fantastic debate we're having. Green jobs actually is the wrong phrasing to be used. But, but Madeleine, maybe responding to that, but also to Sam's point, if we talk about green jobs, people might think you mean actually working in what the public might consider in the environment in some way rather than, of course, we know with climate change, it's a whole economy, a whole society change we need. So almost, every, well, not even almost, lots of people would argue every job should be a green job. I work in the media industry. I'm the editor-in-chief um, uh, and co-founder of the news movement. But we have a carbon footprint. We have offices in New York and London. We travel a huge amount. Journalism is a is a is a high carbon intensive business at times. Formerly, I was at, obviously at the BBC, um, so actually, it's all jobs, isn't it? We should really be talking about.
4: Yeah. So I would very much agree with Sam in terms of we actually found we ran a big campaign at Scottish Power last year because we found that actually, when we're talking about green jobs, people do think you know you're working on the grid or you're outside or you're doing you know ecological jobs and things like that but actually so we ran we needed to recruit a significant um, new entry to our workforce a thousand new people which is substantial for a workforce that only had five and a half thousand people at the time and our whole campaign was actually around showcasing our people that green jobs are not just the ecologists or the offshore te- technicians and things like that it was actually about you know educating people and and trying to entice them to come and work for us about that you know, you can be a project manager, you can be doing a job like mine that's looking at what do we actually need for the future and how we bring people and skills in. And and so we focused really heavily on that because there is, on the other side of the green jobs challenge is actually that attraction piece because we know in the UK we've got an extremely tight labour market at the moment. It's low unemployment at 4.3%, which, you know, you haven't seen those sorts of things since the 70s when it was recorded. And so we have to really think differently about how we get people in because you can have all the, the investment that you want to help us mitigate climate change in the UK, but without the people, and without the workforce, we can't, we can't do anything.
2: And Madeline, do you think about what's where Sam was pointing us a little bit about the narrative of how you talk about that? Is, yeah. is, is there, are there better narratives that are engaging and make the type of opportunities that Scottish Power and Iberdrola across the piece can offer people?
4: Yeah, you've got to, like, storytelling is a huge part and that narrative is really big and critical to how you sell that. And I've been on about three different sector meetings this week across um, offshore wind and um, transmission areas and stuff like that. And actually, every single meeting I've talked on is everyone's going, we need to talk about our sector value proposition. We need to talk about how we attract people into this industry, into green jobs, because what we're doing at the moment, they don't quite understand. So being able to we have to get really clever in terms of how we sell that narrative to people that what green jobs are and also what they can do for people because sometimes there's a you know maybe a misconception that actually you know you might not earn as much money or there might not be security and different things like that so actually we need to be really clever about how we sell this actually we know that climate change is here and we're doing all these different things to mitigate it there's a huge amount of work coming so how we sell that to people to schools And everything like that so that people know that there is a long-term career they can have and a very varied enticing career that they can have with green jobs but it is it's very much about that narrative and how we sell it and it's a huge challenge not just for the private sector but for everyone to be able to do it
2: I'm getting a sense Sean that the first outcome of this fantastic debate is maybe green jobs isn't the best uh, (laughs) uh, narrative title for the revolution that we need to have but Sean give us your thoughts on what does that mean? And what does, a, what does a green economy mean? Well, I think the, the term green jobs is quite useful for politicians and for public
5: policy uh, because there is a, a transition going, it's going on. It's sort of irresistible. Whatever the Daily Telegraph might say, it's happening. It's happening across the world. A lot of jobs are gonna change. People will be putting in heat pumps rather than boilers, working on electric cars rather than petrol and diesel cars. There's a, you know, so we will need new jobs and we will need to reskill people. Uh, And it's useful for politicians, I think, to focus on that, focus both on the the imperative but also the benefits, the extra jobs of homegrown energy, extra doubling the number of people working on offshore wind as we produce homegrown energy rather than importing gas and so on. And so I think for the politicians, thinking about green jobs is actually quite a useful framework.
2: And Sean, what about the more overall approach? I remember that when I was at the BBC as economics editor, it was often a criticism of our audiences at the BBC that we still saw climate change as a sort of subject on its own. Whereas, of course, I think, Sam, as you were saying, it's the economy, it's uh, business policy, it's uh, education policy, it touches everything. Um, uh, If we're thinking about the, the jobs issue, yes, I can see when you're talking about green jobs and specific sectors, so what, Sean, about the more uh, general notion of we have to change the way we think about all employment to create this journey to a green, sustainable economy?
5: Yeah, I mean, I guess we, we've had to change the way we think about all employment anyway because we've had various sort of successive, we've had, you know, when I started work, I was dictating to a secretary who took shorthand, mm. you know, didn't know, know how to turn, turn, on a, turn on a computer for my first 10 years. Hardly know now. You know, there is lots of changes coming with AI, et cetera. So the change, change happens anyway, but I just think the scale of the change we're going to see now is it's a kind of industrial revolution packed into 10 years. Mm. It's the it's a sort of transition from industry to the services, which happened over a period of about 30 years. We're going to have to do this really, really quickly. And I'm not sure people have twigged that. And, and, and we have to do it in the context of an underskilled workforce anyway. And, and So a lot of the problems of green skills are a generic problem of having a skills gap in the UK
3: anyway, which you've had for a long time and we've got to address. And I think part, part of the problem of thinking about green jobs as a siloed thing is you never get into those trade-offs, those choices politicians have to make across the economy. So to give one example, we need all of the electrical engineers to do everything, to do what Sean says, whether it's in the IT revolution in AI, whether it's in finance, whether it's in energy. A lot of electrical engineers currently employed at Hickley Point, the nuclear power plant in the southwest of England. Now the, uh, the vision for the offshore wind sector was, once they finished Hinkley, to time, we'll come back to that, <laughs> that they can potentially be a pool of resource for all the new wind farms we need in the Celtic Sea off the coast of Wales. Two things happened. One, Hinkley was hugely delayed, so they need to continue to employ people. And the second is we signed the AUKUS deal for nuclear submarines um, between the US, Australia and the UK. And people went, oh, actually, I could spend six months in Australia earn more on a longer term contract. So a load of workers left Hinkley to go and work in the nuclear industry abroad. And that means Hinkley even further delayed. And it also leaves you as your Celtic Sea offshore wind operator going, who on earth am I going yeah. to employ? Madeline, do you
2: get that sense? I mean, as you say, the recent announcement on Hinkley, a lot of that is down to a lack of skills, a lack of fundamental skills within engineering and, 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 and high technology engineering. I mean, Madeline, is that something that you get a real understanding
4: of? Yeah, it's similar to, like, the just transition. We were told, we've been told for years that it's all right, don't worry, all the oil and gas workers are going to come over. They're going to come over, they're going to come over. And that just, it hasn't happened because at the moment, up north, the with the North Sea, oil and gas is still a very enticing industry for people and you know you've got the government that are still opening up licences and things like that so that transition of skills that are going to come into our industry just continues to be delayed and like offshore wind for example is short if we're to deliver what we need to deliver as an industry we're short 70,000 people Mm. between now and 2030 for an industry that only has 34,000 people I think so this, that skill shortage is exacerbated by a huge number of different things and it's, it makes it incredibly complex for, for developers and, and, and people to create policy that's actually going to make a difference.
2: And Madeline, what, get, let's think about some solutions and maybe uh, Sean and Sam, let's, let's, let's touch on this training issue then. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like James Dyson and many others have been making this point for years and uh, as have, you know, the, you know uh, us here. Um, what do you need to see as someone at the cutting edge of this transition work that we need to do, what's, what, what could work and is anything working at the moment?
4: I think at the moment with our current government, a lot of the onus is on developers, okay? And that's fine, we do definitely need to take responsibility for the skills and the people that we're bringing in and, and the work that we need done, but also we need frameworks in place that the government can support to help us deliver that. For one example is like the apprentice apprenticeship levy, right, in England. So since that was introduced in 2017, there was a, there's actually a reduction, a 49% reduction in apprenticeships that have come into England at that point. And essentially this levy is a, a pot of money that employers contribute to. There's certain parameters, but, you know, it's very restricted in how you utilise it. So it makes it really difficult for developers to actually you know we're giving all this money but we're not actually being able to get much back in terms of training and the different things that we can do to entice that workforce
5: but there's a 3 billion pound underspend 100% well. mm. and it
4: makes it Businesses um, won't
2: use it no
5: because it's and too it difficult makes yeah.
4: it incredibly difficult and also you know being able to having having support for people to make the transition across into different jobs and retrain from the government i think will be incredibly helpful because at the moment if you're someone who's looking to retrain or maybe move across to a green sector or something like that. The onus is very much on you to do your own training, upskill yourself. There's a cost and we're in a cost of living crisis at the moment. And a lot of people just can't afford to do that. So having, you know, policy from the government to help support people come across the industry will be incredibly beneficial to supporting them.
2: Madeline, just before I come back to you, Sean, on this issue of training and, and what policies work, have there been, Madeline, things that have worked, have helped or is there a policy proposition that you think would enable you to go faster on the journey we all need to go on?
4: I think fixing the apprenticeship levy to start yeah. with is a big one um, that's that's seriously needs some help I think also some of the parameters around I think the the contracts for different scheme where a lot of developers like us when we secure you know different contracts for um, solar onshore offshore wind those sorts of things I think having a having an agreement between us and the government that's a little bit more flexible in terms of what we can do. At the moment, there's a lot of parameters around what we as developers need to do and what we need to contribute, and it can be quite difficult for us sometimes to be able to deliver on that. And and what we want to do, we, we're the same as everyone else. We want to create more jobs. We want to be able to deliver on that infrastructure. But at the moment, you can be really restricted by the government rather than actually supported to deliver what we need to
2: Excellent, Madeline, thanks so much. Sean, you were nodding through a lot of what Madeline uh, was saying. When it comes to the notion of training, and obviously we can sometimes slightly think of training as if this is an issue for young people, obviously training yeah. is has got to be a lifelong process whilst you're in work and, and maybe you know post-work. Um, what types of things, Sean, have, uh, have you seen that could work in this area to allow us to... Uh, uh, energize this transition, this engineering transition we need?
5: I think it's not so much specific things, but I think that it's a really complex area. And I'm, I'm a member of the um, government's Green Jobs Delivery Group. Uh, which is owned by four government departments, loads of people from the Further Education Center. It's sector. not a problem
2: right there. It's owned by four government departments. Well, or... I think it's not a problem, <laughs> really. It's,
5: it's got input from so us. Uh, I actually yeah. think that's quite a good thing, because the ministers are turned up, and yeah. uh, it's owned by DESNES, uh, the, the NG yeah. and Net Zero scheme. But, yeah. but there, there's been a... Fan... And so when, when, when I started on it, it's mostly businesses. There's a couple of think tanks. I thought, God, this is a huge challenge. I was learning a whole lot of new acronyms. It's just getting a sense of just how many players there are, how complex it is but they have actually started to drill down different sectors um, looking at particular uh, bottlenecks, particular points, of, you know, things that need doing. And I think they're going to come up with a green jobs plan. I think it's going to be launched by the Secretary of State, Claire Coutinho. Um, I think if there is a Labour government, they'd be well advised to borrow from it and not try and do the whole process again. And actually, I'm quite impressed with some of the work that's been done the problem is the context is in the in the lack of a kind of clear industrial strategy with lots of equivocation about net zero um with a shortage of money uh, with constantly changing ministers we we're on our third minister for this but we all know the kind of chaos has been with seven chancellors and four prime five probably there are you know so you do These need count, some, yeah. some certainty uh, and yeah. you can't i don't think you can just have a green job strategy that sits on its own uh, yeah. and delivers because it's it's part and parcel of a
2: much more complex national... I'm liking, uh, Sean, and... I'm liking Sean, though, that uh, you went in with maybe a degree of scepticism, but actually you have seen some good cross-departmental work, cross-departmental um, uh, approaches. We will get on to politics in a little while. And um, thank you so much, people who are putting their uh, questions into the... Into the questions box. It's really helpful. You, you've just joined. Um, if you've just joined us, we're with Intelligence Squared and Nibbadrola. We're discussing the green jobs uh, revolution. So thank you so much for tuning in and do keep those um, questions coming. We will get to them um, uh, shortly. But, Sean, Sh- um, when you're thinking about uh, the role of government and the green jobs plan and this notion of lack of industrial strategy, lots and lots of businesses were shocked by this notional government cross-party support for high-speed rail and HS2. That was suddenly handbrake turn, mixing my metaphors, I know it's a train, but you know what I mean. And it stopped, and I won't speak for Madeline, but I know a lot of business leaders who were infuriated by how poor sometimes a a government partner is in the notion of long-term planning.
5: Yeah, after God knows how many hundreds of hours of parliamentary debate, you can just kind of get rid of it like that, and and the engineering firms are in despair. There's kind of highly skilled people who've been working on this for ages. I think one of the other, I mean, I I talked about industrial strategy, you also need an infrastructure pipeline. Uh, Keir Starmer keeps talking about bulldozing planning, but actually countries that do planning well know what they're planning in the next five, 10, 15 years, They've got planners, we, we always, in terms of skills, we're always talking about STEM subjects, but you need the softer skills, you need the humanities, you need planners, you need, you need all sorts of skills, project management skills, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the fact that we couldn't build HS2 or didn't or haven't built it is, is a terrible indictment of the way we plan big projects in this country.
2: Now, Sam, we, we've, we've, we've flirted around the narrative, the political narrative, I think, as a journalist sort of, you know, covering these sorts of areas, um, there does feel, but do correct me if if your sense is different, to have been a mood change. Obviously, there are two two things there. The the government's reformulation of the 2050 targets and how the UK was going to get there. Um, uh, The by-election in Uxbridge, which became... um, Uh, a debate around um, uh, the use of uh, petrol and diesel vehicles. Um, And then, of course, literally as we are speaking, is Labour committed to the 28 billion pounds a year investment in the Green Revolution? What's your take on the political mood, Sam? And, and, And how do we encourage politicians to stick to the track? that is so vital in hitting the net-zero targets by 2050?
3: The the reason we're talking about jobs today is because the net-zero transition is an economic issue now. It is the centre of what you want your economy to do and what you want it to be and what you want it to provide. The problem, the more it gets to be an economic issue, the more there are questions about how, the more value judgments or political judgments about the different policies to bring about net-zero come into play. So you look at some of the things the Labour Party has announced and they've said we would like the UK to see a greater share of green manufacturing, for example, building things like batteries, building potentially transmission infrastructure itself. Now, the current government, that's not a priority for them. The priority for them potentially is to import goods at lower cost. Um, These are trade-offs and this is what politicians have to make. And if you ask Claire Coutinho, the Secretary of State for Energy, if you ask Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, they will both say they are fundamentally committed to net zero by 2050. And I don't think those things are, are going away anytime soon, because that's where the public opinion is. It is rock solid on support for climate change. The question is now, as we get closer to election, is the plans for how are going to diverge and they're going to be different. And fundamentally, both parties have chosen the how to be the, de- the political dividing line that they're after. And Sam, so you spoke about it in your opening remarks that
2: this idea of uh, fiscal trust, mm-hmm. economic trust, is at this stage um, uh, more important to Labour approaching an election um, than the broader arguments about how do we reach uh, 2050. Sam, you—let's imagine, and this may well be the case, you're sitting in front of Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. How—what would you be saying to them? Or is it actually we should understand as journalists, we're going to need those two phases for um, if there is a future Labour government, i.e., fiscal trust first, Labour gets into power, then they change the debate? Or would you be saying, no, 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 you need to still be having the 28 billion debate right now?
3: There's a few things going on there. So I always think it's helpful, particularly for the Labour Party, they memorialise it, to think about what it was like in 1997 when Tony Blair was running. Now, in 1997, the the public voters were nervous about Labour. They thought they were a radical party, they thought they might do some weird things in government and they really needed to hug business tight, they needed to show they were cautious and a sensible party that would look after the nation's finances. The difference in 2024, the public are scared. Not of the Labour Party, of the world. They are incredibly uncertain about all the changes that are coming, all the things that are happening abroad, and they want to be made to feel secure. And how that manifests itself, looking at the Labour Party, is, do you have a clear plan? Do you have the courage of your conviction to follow through on that plan and stick to it? And particularly for the Labour Party, that is most evident in the voters that they lost in 2019. They need to be told that we have a a credible proposition for change. And the interesting thing about the 28 billion is for labor that is its proposition for change that is what he wants to do in government what we need to do now is reframe that conversation and ask the labor party so in year one what does that mean what are you going to be spending that money on and how will that affect people's lives that is what the public is after and that is what businesses need to know as well so they can plan and ultimately what you pick in year one of a labor government potentially if you pick those onshore wind projects, all those transmission products, all those net zero things that we know are good for economic growth allow you to have more money to spend in year five and do the other things that Labour wants to do. So actually, that ambition and clarity in year one is vital to the scope of change you can make in year five.
5: I couldn't couldn't agree more. Mm. You just need to be clear about what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. Yes. And and not just kind of go into... a (laughs) <laughs> 10,
2: to be suited to, to, to be non-partisan, Sam, let's say you're sitting in front of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, and they're saying, yeah, but Sam, 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 this stuff is really expensive, look what happened in Uxbridge. What do you say to them?
3: So the interesting <laughs> thing about Uxbridge is, one, it wasn't a net zero issue. It's only the media afterwards that went, oh, that must be like net zero, but it's definitely not. It's um, about air pollution and how people drive their cars. Um, and <laughs> most fundamentally, I think, about Uxbridge is the Conservative vote went down by 10,000 votes. Like, it's not like they were on a trajectory to do... It wasn't a, a ringing endorsement of the, of the EULAs. Um, so, in, fr- in front of Richie Sunak, and I think you see this in the conversation they've tried to have, in that they are trying to do stuff to create that dividing line, whether it's talking about oil and gas, whether it's slowing down the heat pump. But they are having to follow everything up with, but we are fundamentally committed to net zero. And what's interesting is, if you speak to the public now... So I ran a load of focus groups last week and what is the one thing that the the public come up with? Oh, the Conservative Party. They're the ones that want to bring back fossil fuels, don't they? It is not the message that the Conservative Party thinks it is telling the public that it is about the future, but it is about the cautious approach to the future. The public are beginning to think that the Conservative Party are the party of the past.
2: Madeline, before we go to questions, we've had questions on AI, we've had questions on how do we have a just transition to green jobs, which we'll come to, mm-hmm. uh, and other areas around education. But, Madeline, before we just come and start peppering in our questions, and do keep your questions coming, it's, it's lovely to be able to hear from you as well as part of this discussion. Madeline, what have Iberdrola been able to do? We've talked a little bit about policy, the need for consistency, the types of discussions, Sean, that um, you're involved in, Sam, the focus group work that you're doing to see where the public is and the public's mind is. For Ibadrola, what have you been able to do when you're thinking about the specifics of how you're thinking about uh, the jobs transition that we're in?
4: Yeah. So I think there's a, it's, a, it's a very big question. Yeah. So I mean, do divide it down into little areas. No, yeah. no, of course. And I think when we think about jobs, you've got to think about jobs. You've got the jobs that you need right now. There's definitely the jobs in the future, but... Where we, we've been spending a lot of time, and I've got colleagues that put a significant amount of their effort into, and Iberdrola is a massive supporter of this, it's actually that also future-on piece in terms of, you know, how do we actually target people from school level, people that are transitioning from... that are returners to the workforce and different areas like that, because we need to... We know that there's actually a huge proportion of the workforce that we're not engaging at the moment in green jobs, Right, So, you know, it's I think it's about... Only 28% of STEM-related roles are filled by women, okay? So you've got a huge disparity there and also so, and also underrepresented groups that we're not engaging as well. So there's huge portions of those workforces that we are not engaging properly. So we do a lot of work at Iberdrola and Scottish Power to actually think about how do we engage those different um, parts. And it's not necessarily... They might not be workforce-ready age yet, but starting to get them to think about how they can contribute to stem what they can do and stem where the opportunities are and reframing thinking and, and providing education because we know that, you know, we at Scottish Power, we have plans, we have investment plans that go out a lot further than the next few years, right? We know that there's a lot more coming in the future. So the green jobs proposition and that that critical that critical problem for us is is not something that's going to be solved overnight. So we're putting a lot of effort into thinking about you know, how do we start changing that for a lot longer in the future as well?
2: So you've opened up uh, beautifully uh, to a question that um, Samita Biswas um, from Impact Lead has asked and um, uh, they ask, uh, how do we ensure women don't, which you've touched on obviously in the STEM area but obviously other areas, how do we ensure women don't get left behind in the green jobs revolution? And in developing countries, how do we ensure a just transition where the informal sector poor can also benefit from the green jobs revolution? So a f- first question is around the UK approach yeah. to the just transition, that point that you make, that yeah. a lot of people are left out of this conversation, 100%. which is so true for so many parts of the employment uh, market. But then in Bajor, obviously a global um, yeah. uh, uh, business, when we're thinking about what's sometimes described as the global south versus the global north, that notion of the trust transition. So there's a UK lens and there's a bigger global lens.
4: Yeah, I think it's such a, it's such a complicated proposition, but I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in a lot of my colleagues and at Iberdrola and at Scottish Power, we, we talk about the fact that, you know, this talent and how we, we solve that problem is not just on any one company It is very much should be a joint effort between developers in the sector, between policymakers, between government and different areas, because we will not solve this problem by ourselves. And even at a global level, it's about, you know, not reinventing the wheel every time. Germany has some really good things that they do in terms of what they do with labour infrastructure. So, you know, learning from other countries in different areas and picking that up and bringing it over to the UK, for example, um, looking at how we share best practices and what we do to deliver together. Because at the moment, otherwise, what happens in the UK in particular, because we've got such a light, tight labour market and we, as i discussed, we're shutting out a lot of people in terms of women and underrepresented groups from those jobs, is that developers and, and policy makers, we all just borrow talent off each other, right? So we're not actually, we're instead of actually, you know, looking at the, the hole in the roof and, and thinking about, OK, what do we actually do? Do we need to rebuild this? How do we fix it properly? What sort of things need to be done? We're just putting a bucket under it. So it's very much, it's a joint, joint task for all of us. I'm not sure if I've answered yeah, all no, the questions. Yeah, no, you
2: have. <laughs> I'm, I'm, interested, I'm interested, Madeline, in the actual specifics of identify the problem, what does that specifically mean you have to do? Is it literally going out to the schools, literally going out to the colleges, literally going out to the community centres, being much more... Yeah visible in, in the work? 100%, you
4: have got to do both. So it's about, so one of my colleagues talks about, you know, high impact events, right? So obviously companies, policy, the government, everyone's time limited, we're resource limited, right? So it's thinking about what, what sort of things can we do that have the biggest impact possible, right? So getting into the community and how do you, um, you know, how do you pick up and lift events that you can have a bigger impact on throughout the UK or or take them overseas? With At Ibadrola, we share a lot of best practice globally in terms of what we're doing across the same um, industry. And it's about, you know, thinking about what where we can add that most value and, and have the biggest impact. Can
5: I just ask, yeah. when, when you go out to schools, you're talking about jobs in the power sector, not green jobs? Or are you talking about green jobs? What's but, so
4: oh. it's, it's a bit of both. So oh. we, it's... It's understanding the green jobs, like we've been talking before. It is a bit of a, um, a bit of a tumultuous term sometimes, right? So it has different connotations. So it's it's talking about where the futures, the future is in those green jobs, and what we're doing within us specifically in the power sector.
3: We just ran a big poll for um, the Printers Trust, which is a Young People's Charity, on what are the career motivating factors for young people. Um, and one interesting, like security comes top, job security, absolutely yeah. for all groups especially so for women there is about a 15 point lead on women prioritizing security in their work um, and that's because young people know that they know there's a gender pay gap they know that they might have to potentially take a hit at some point um, and they want to be cautious they want to make the right choice for them so the, the question for the power sector is in a trying to attract women is it a different problem that you're facing than anyone else probably not talk about security, talk about the level of play. talk about your maternity conditions and the potential flexibility to move into other roles or shift your role or shift your working patterns. This is how we get people into these roles. Yeah. And can sure. I just add,
5: yeah, politically, I think there's, there's a real need to talk about good quality unionised jobs as well, because it's not surprising that the GMB and other unions are, are kind of concerned about the transition. You see what's happening in Port Talbot with the steel. You need to make the narrative that these are going to be good unionised jobs to replace...
2: Is the government listening to that type jobs. of argument? The government is at war with a number of unions across all sorts of sectors at the moment.
5: Like, yeah, but the government's worked work well with the unions at sometimes, didn't they, <laughs> during the pandemic? But I don't think it's, it's hearing very strongly. It didn't yeah. work with the unions before Port Talbot mm. lost its, its jobs, which it should
3: have done. But I'd yeah. also be saying to GMB... Why are you not working harder to unionise these so new sectors? You need to move off the. You have need to definitely protect your existing members. There's a whole future of other members that you need to be trying to unionise. Yeah, don't be king. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it's that, one one that
2: classic, that classic twentieth century model. They still keep trying to apply to a twenty first century world, which is a, a problem for so many sectors and so many parts of this discussion. But Sean, I wanted to come to you um, about Smita's uh, question. Um, is the government thinking about this notion of an economically let me put it like that just transition uk but then the second big point uh, that is made here for this question is this notion of the informal sector poor so when you're looking at global south global north these economies and structures are, are totally different and and uh, from uh, what we're more used to in western developed economies mm. Do you see that as the responsibility of how the UK operates in the world? So two things, UK and then that global piece.
5: Well, the global piece is, is quite a big, difficult
2: question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I might come on to
5: that, but uh, <laughs> on, on, is the government thinking about just transition? I don't think it is doing so enough. Mm. The Green Jobs Delivery Group, which I mentioned, is mm. definitely thinking about yeah. diversity, the role of women, uh, making these good jobs for everyone. They're, they're thinking about the not in empl- education, employment, or training. Extraordinary, 800,000 young people aged 16 to 24 not in education, employment, or training. That's a real national crisis, whether it's green or not. Yeah. In uh, a tight labour market. 100%. and
4: percent
5: Yeah, 500, 1, of those aren't, aren't registered unemployed. They're, they're not you know, actively seeking work. And we've also got the underemployed older people. So there's, there are really profound issues about getting more people into work and capable of...
2: Work. And Sean, I'm just going to push you a little bit then on to you, Sam, Sean, but it's always good if we can come up with a solution or something that <laughs> works to try and answer the questions that we've been, we've been thrown. Um, in your work, in, you know, the, the great organisations you've worked in and the, the advisory work and the work you're doing at present, is there no such thing as a silver bullet, but is there uh, a, a silver lining or something that you've seen that has worked well and that we should, as you say, Madeline, be learning about best practice we could, we could share.
5: I think there are lots of good micro schemes, mm. and the problem is whether you, how you mainstream them. There's, there's a. We've just done a report with the youth, um, youth advisory service about getting younger people into jobs and looking at some of the things, some of the schemes to get people working into nature jobs. But they're kind of quite heavily subsidised. Groundwork are doing some useful things in terms of nature jobs, but it's how you get. The the scale, I'm not sure that anybody's quite kind of got the answer to that. But you do need a framework and a strategy and a way of testing, and you need much better data collection because at the moment also we've we scrapped the the kind of the UK body that collected all
2: the data on skills in what eight data years ago. Data is critical. So um, many um, unintended consequences of policy changes in in terms of the green jobs. And uh, I get revolution. the impression we're
5: sort of starting. We started looking at this as a sort of crisis about three years ago, mm. again as a country. So yeah. it's not surprising we don't have. This is the answer yet.
2: Now, Sam, my my business, uh, the news movement, is New York, London. Um, In America, there is a huge government-backed campaign around STEM, which ends up with a huge um, White House uh, reception for young people. It's all over. It's the federal government, but it's throughout um, uh, all the states in the United States. Um, We're connected with... With some of the uh, coverage and work, because our, our 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 business is about speaking to the next generation of employees and consumers, uh, Generation Z. But Sam, have you seen examples of things that work, or what might work for the public? For look. I've been in this business 30 <laughs> years, and we've been having these discussions, actually not in the same way in the 90s, because we had, you know, very different growth trajectory. You've already pointed back to Tony Blair in 1997. It was a different era. The 2008 crisis in finance has led to this stagnant period of incomes and economic growth, really, for since that moment. Sam... Have you got examples of where we can see some real solutions in this area, even in a UK context?
3: Yeah, well, I'll start with the developing countries point, actually. Yeah. Um, So I think we have to be careful about separating out... uh, developing countries and what their offer is or what their stages of the transition. So if you go to India, India is training six-figure sums of solar engineers currently because they see their role in the global transition as exporting labour. They want to send their workers abroad to work in different countries and help them install solar. So we should absolutely be, businesses should be knocking down the door to government and saying, we should be open to uh, Indian solar engineers because it's helping us fix a UK problem and supporting a developing country. Where this becomes more challenging is in frontier technologies like hydrogen. So if you go to Nigeria, Nigeria thinks, with all its oil and gas industry, that it could be a potential leader in hydrogen. But if we are moving faster and we say, we actually don't have many skilled hydrogen engineers here, why don't we look abroad? Why don't we import some labor from Nigeria? Then we could potentially be holding back the global transition So some really interesting stuff that germany is doing at the moment with colombia where they are paying colombians to become solar and heat pump engineers and installers and they come over to germany for a set amount of time and then they go back but you've also as well as the person you've imported you funded a place back in colombia so that sort of scheme where you are supporting training schemes abroad and benefiting for a short term in the developed world uh, i think is definitely a place to start then I think we need to move out, when we're talking in-country, we need to move outside of the green transition to look where things have worked. Government had a great scheme on digital boot camps, which is short-term training, contra- uh, training schemes, a few weeks, uh, advertised everywhere loads of diverse people in those advertisements saying, this person can be in digital, this person can do this thing in digital, and being really explicit about what those different roles were, and that they were open to everyone, and that government would help you fund your place. Now, we have 9,000 um, heat pump places, training places funded currently. Now, that's not 9,000 people doing them. Um, we need 230,000 heat pump engineers. So I would suggest that maybe uh, a heat pump style boot camp built on the digital model with a significantly uh, larger number of places could, uh, could be yeah. a good place to start. That's a really good, precise
2: example. That's what I like to <laughs> hear, Sam. So, well done, you get a gre- uh, green start. I was, star. star. was going to say gold nice. star, but actually a green star. <laughs> so, there we go. Um, now, no debate is complete, with, without talking about generative AI, uh, uh, clearly. One of those terms that is thrown around, um, sometimes to create fear, sometimes to create great positivity. Um, Madeline, how are you thinking about generative ai we've been asked a question how do you think ai and automation will affect the future of green jobs will it be difficult for people to find jobs in the future as technology develops
4: i think i think regardless even when thinking about ai and and what we can do to innovate and, and actually you know automate a lot of parts of our of our business and what we do the green job—that there are so many green jobs required, and there's going to be so many changes through our workforce in terms of what people need to do and and where we need to be um, to deliver on all the infrastructure—that AI is only going to help us do that. So, from like a lot of a lot of my job um, is actually looking at strategic workforce planning and you know what we do for the future and how we find where those skills are and what we need to look at and where we need to focus. So, part of strategic workforce planning, we actually look at well. How is AI and you know digitalization going to impact those jobs? And where do we maybe need to retrain skills? Do we need to transfer people over? What sort of future outlook and skills are we going to need to be getting? So I don't think AI is a thing to be scared of. I think it's natural for people to be scared of it because you you know, it's very much an unknown. But I think we really need to harness the potential of it and use it as a key enabler in the Green Jobs Revolution so that we can we do have the people for the
3: future. We have um, yeah. one 0.2 million vacancies open in the UK at the moment, job vacancies yeah. for people to fill. Um, we are at near full employment anyway. Uh, it is absolutely the case for the net zero transition that it is both. What we need, yeah. and part of the problem in the UK, is that we are a relatively low wage, low productive uh, society. We want each job to produce more per hour so that that person could potentially earn more wages. That's the whole point of the net zero transition, that the jobs are high value, people are higher paid, everyone benefits there is no way of doing that without greater levels of automation without greater levels of technology that is helping each worker to
2: do more and sam on the notion of generative ai i don't know if you've done any work with public attitudes my senses and this is obviously not a good way to think about this but my sense is throw generative ai into the green jobs debate even if that's the wrong type of debate to be having already It just makes it even more distant from what the public think is job security, what is this about. It just becomes an over there thing that doesn't involve me.
3: I think the public would struggle to define either of those things. And you just added another one that they can't define. Um, With all of this stuff, it is about removing that title and getting granular very quickly. What is that person going to be doing in their role that you want them to be doing? And how do we sell them on that skill set? that they need to acquire together.
2: Yeah. Sean, can I bring it forward? We've got two, two questions um, from our audience. And thank you so much for joining this debate, Energised, uh, supported by Intelligence Squared and Iberdrola. Um, Sean, two on um, education and the green economy, which we've touched on briefly, but I wanted to ask these specific questions. One from Tilly, who asks, should green economy, which is put in quotes, be part of the school curriculum? And then an add to that from another questioner who is um, anonymous: uh, Is it more important for schools or universities to focus on training and education for the green jobs revolution? So I just wondered what your well, response sorry, was. is the, the second one. What the second we... was: Is it more important for schools or universities or, to focus? Or universities. Yes, or maybe even and. Yeah. I don't know. I would imagine and maybe, but um, to focus on training and education for the green jobs. Revolution. Well, on, on schools, I think schools should be teaching
5: more generally about the environment. We've just got a... a, a natural history GCSEs come in, but uh, climate change was taken out of the curriculum. I mean, we are that living in a... It's <laughs>
2: remarkable, short, doesn't it? Climate change was taken out of the curriculum, no? Is that not... Well, I think it was pretty remarkable, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, OK, yeah. And, and so, he's one of learn. So, uh, learn Tilly, the we're sorry, but um, <laughs> it seems that the government's already decided they're going to go in the opposite direction. But anyway, Sean, Sean in <laughs> his powerful <laughs> trade advisory role, will be able to push them back, hopefully.
5: Well, yeah, Yeah, no, I think, I mean, we do need... I, I'm not sure about teaching... It would be interesting to get your take whether whether you teach people specifically about green jobs. There is a, there, there is a thing that came up in one of our Green Lance reports is, is one of the... There's an issue with careers advice. That people just don't think there are jobs of this sort out there because they're not getting. I think they're just not getting good enough careers advice actually in schools. So the problem is we keep saying we need to do lots more things, but we do to to equip people for the um, for the revolution that's, that's happening yeah. at the moment, and that includes working in schools about career options, but also so people understand the nature of the climate crisis and. And and the ecological crisis, not not kind of, I don't, people will think that's propaganda, but it isn't really, I just think it's, you can do it with science, science lessons. People ought to
2: understand why the planet is heating. Just one interesting uh, data point. We we did a lot of work around this notion of where people learn things. And of course, where people learn things is only partially in school. And actually YouTube videos is the main place that lots of people learn things who are young. Yeah, and my son uh, yeah i think i think madeline thinking about my my children as well say 23 and 20 that's where they go to yeah. find out stuff but i think that doesn't mean there's not a role for education policy makers but in spaces where their audience is i still think there's too much of a notion of trying to have 20th century fixes for yeah. 21st century audiences and 21st century audiences yes the classroom is one place Tilly, and that's a good question but Frankly, YouTube is another. Just wonder, Madeline, on the education point, is enough thought being given to where your audience is and how audiences, consumers, the next generation of workforces, actually consume information?
4: I think it's a really complex question. Are you, are you on TikTok? <laughs> I know I actually <laughs> uh, do not have TikTok, but I think I think that you know thinking about YouTube in different ways that people like I. I learn a lot through podcasts, like to be perfectly honest. That's where I get a lot of information and learn. So everybody and particularly in this post COVID world as well, we work differently, we do things differently, we absorb information and, and people have different things that matter. So you have to really approach it differently. I think on that education piece overall from within the workforce and also, you know, a younger audience, I think the carbon literacy is a really, really important piece that, you know, we need to spend some more time on. Actually people understanding you know, what 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 does net zero mean in that carbon literacy um, and having requirements around that and also being able to um, being able to deliver for the future on the workforce. We need to, that careers advice, I think that point from you, Sean, in terms of actually people in schools and what advice are our kids being given and what advice are the children in the future so that, you know, they're enabled and they've got the best information to make their careers and I think we need to start being really clever about how people can absorb that information. And
2: these are jobs for everyone
5: as well. Yeah, jobs for everyone,
4: 100%.
2: Sam, carbon literacy, not to throw in another (laughs) two words that the public will presumably struggle to get their names across. (laughs) But Sam, what about the... how we should be approaching... You've touched on this a couple of times, actually, and I think one of the most interesting themes you've raised is the language we use to persuade people to engage with these debates. The role of schools, Mm -hmm. the sense of the public's knowledge. I think, Madeleine, you make such an important point. I think the notion of carbon literacy, in my my area, the notion of media literacy, how to know what the truth is, I think is important. And then we've got, what is it, 40%, depending on how you judge an election, 40% of the world's population this year will be going to vote, from India to Mexico to the USA to Indonesia to South Africa to the UK, of course. Um, Sam carbon literacy added into the notion of, so many people, I would imagine, don't understand what 1.5 degrees warming is because they think, well, that's, that's not very much. Why are we so panicked about such a small amount of change in the temperature?
3: I'm a governor at a state school up the road, um, and we are trying to work through how do we bring the kids on a journey to a net zero school? What does being net zero in a London state school look like? Um, first thing that will make a teacher's eyes roll over faster than you can imagine is um, talking about changing the curriculum. Yeah, sure. It's a really easy lever for policymakers to go, so right. we'll just change the US. curriculum. We, a can, we can put more stuff in. <laughs> uh, and they go, OK, so they want us to do this extra thing. But where are you going to put that in in my day? I'm already working X number of hours. Everything is complete. Quick, let's bung it in PSHE and hope they don't notice. Um, I would say there's a big role. So DfE have a sustainable, the Department for Education in the UK, they have a sustainability strategy. And a lot of that is about how schools deal with their waste, how they get their energy. And there's a small section on what they should be teaching. Um, but we do need to go back to the drawing board. And there's some fantastic organisations out there at UCL, Centre for Sustainability, Fed Education, going, OK, what does climate change integrated across the syllabus look like, rather than going, it is an extra thing that we need to cram in. We need to be teaching it as an aspect of history and how governments have fallen. We need to be teaching it in geography and in science. But it's also about the way we teach those subjects. So. A bunsen burner you know it's not the best example of uh, ways that we want to talk about the transition in engineering and industrial strategy Mm. and i think the, the final piece on that that i say is we can't just teach people about the problem we need to equip young people with skills that they can apply to that problem to try and solve it and that's where education does need fundamental reform, is those skills are the same. They are the same across AI. They are the same across the energy transition. How you apply an engineering mindset or a problem-solving mindset to this big global challenge and giving children a sense of hope that they can have a role in it is, I think, equally, if not more important, than understanding what 1.5 to me yeah.
2: Brilliant, Sam. Thank you so much. Look, we're coming to the last three to four minutes of this fabulous, fabulous um, debate, but I've got two, two questions. Slightly short-fire answers, if, if I can, ask from, from all of you. The first one I'm going to do, Sean and Sam. And then the second one is uh, uh, actually specifically about uh, Ibadrola, uh, the cell. So I'll come to you, Madeline, on that. Sam, you may have touched on this slightly, and you did mention India, but someone um, who is watching us has asked, which country in the world is leading the way on creating green jobs and training the right amount of skilled workers? Are there examples out there, and I'm going to come to you, Sean, with the same question, are there examples out there that we can look to, maybe Germany, Madeleine, you've mentioned, that you've seen in your work that we could be looking to to answer
3: that type of question? Depends on which part of the green transition. So if you're looking heat pumps, Norway, France, Germany, Europe, miles ahead of the UK. They know how to do it, they know how to install it, they know how to um, train the people. On that wider creating jobs... Joe Biden, through his Inflation Absolutely. Reduction Act, has put all of the money under God into the American economy to get it moving. Uh, it has worked. Their private investment manufacturing is going through the roof on a number of metrics. Problem is, they're now at the stage of going, OK, so we can create lots of job openings. Now we need to fill them. So there, they're looking to Europe and going, how are you training people? How are we leading to greater levels of automation? Because Biden wants to talk to the public about jobs he's created, but people have to have those jobs so that he can do that.
2: John? Sure. Any thoughts on that at all, on the notion of, is there a a country we should be looking to?
5: No, I was going to say the same about um, the US. I mean, Norway on EVs are very good, but yeah. Yeah.
2: Madeline, let me just come to you very briefly on um, this final question. How does Iberdrola's work to attract people to green jobs differ across different offices across the world? Is the approach different in Australia compared with Spain or Scotland?
4: Yeah, so we're very privileged to operate in a number of countries, but, you know, they're, all those countries are very, very different, right? So, we we try and share best practice, but we also have to tailor it to the local market. The UK, like we've talked about, really tight labour market, so it's a little bit more difficult, right? However, in Spain, they've got you know 11.5% unemployment, and that's really low for them. So, it's a very different market in terms of attracting people in. Same as the US, and it's all like the nomenclature and things like that you use. You have to be really clever about how you say things and and, and and what you call things because it's you very much need to be careful about how you attract your local audience so we try and have an Iberdrola value proposition that we can leverage because we are a global company and there's some really cool opportunities but you know we do have to be clever at you know really tailoring that to local markets
3: thanks am um, yeah. let's go down Hmm? How does green jobs go down in Spanish?
4: Oh, my Spanish is very business, as in, could I get to the airport and I don't speak Spanish? I'm sorry, sorry. (laughs) so...
3: Sam,
2: one thing we can add to the things we need to learn about. Just finally, final minute, final minute from each of you, and I want to end, and thank you so much for tuning in to watch this um, uh, debate, this brilliant debate we've had, and thank you so much to the three of you for it. Just about your degree of optimism. I think we've had a really interesting discussion about the language we use. We think green jobs is maybe not it, but actually the revolution needs to happen. The holistic, the need for a holistic approach. But Sam, if I could come to you first. um, That notion of how much optimism do you have under this title of the green jobs revolution that we are going to get it right?
3: Um, 50-50. The UK, absolute world leader in decarbonising its power system, has done a fantastic job. We've now sort of settled behind. Uh, the 50% is like we've let ourselves fall behind, so it makes me a bit worried. But 50%, other countries are going gangbusters. So there's no reason we can't copy and catch up.
2: Fantastic.
5: Sean. One of Green Lives' values is we are optimists. So I'm mandated <laughs> to, to optimism. <laughs> I, I am optimistic if we can, if, if the government stops trying to knock things like the Green Prosperity Plan and, and comes up with a different plan for how we're going to deal with low investment, low productivity, low growth. And if there is a Labour government, if it really sticks to its guns and says, this is a transition, we've got to go with it.
2: Thank you, Madeleine, what what
4: levels Um, are your optimism? I'm I'm very optimistic by nature, and it really helps me in this job and the challenge that I have. But I think if we all work together and we use um, the talent that we have across government, across the private sector, and we work together, I think we really can make a difference and we will be able to do it.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sam. Sean and Madeline, what a fantastic debate. Thank you so much for joining. We've been supported by Intelligence Squared and Iberdrola for this debate around Energize and the green transition and net zero by 2050. I'm Kamal Ahmed, I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of the news movement. Thank you so much for joining and do plug in to Intelligence Squared forward slash Energize to see this whole debate in
0: super technicolor. Thanks for listening to Energised, a podcast from Intelligence Squared and Iberdrola. This episode was produced by Faye Adabita. For more episodes of Energised, search out the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at IntelligentSquared.com.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.